Alright, if you have your Bibles, turn me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. And what I'm going to try to do is keep my remarks fairly short so that we have plenty of time at the end for questions. Many of us here have probably read the Left Behind series, or at least some of the books in the Left Behind series. Uh, This church historically has had a strong stand for dispensationalism, a strong stand for prophecy, and a strong stand for the fact that Jesus is coming again anytime. It's called the doctrine of imminence. Jesus could be here today. Well, in Jesus' own teaching and in the teaching of Paul and Peter, it's illustrated that Jesus is coming as a thief in the night. And so we're going to look at that uh, today and follow along as I read verses 1 through 11 of 1st S5. But concerning the times and seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you. For you yourselves know perfectly well that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. For when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. But you, notice the contrast from they to you, but you, brethren, are not in the darkness, so that this day should overtake you as a thief. You are all sons of light and sons of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet the hope of salvation. For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake, that's literally the Greek word watch, same word we had up above, whether we watch or sleep, we should live together with him. Therefore, comfort one another and edify one another just as you are doing. The first three verses are basically saying that Jesus is coming like a thief in the night. And you'll notice he's talking about the day of the Lord in verse 2. So comes as a thief in the night. How did they know this so well? Well, because Paul taught them. Right? When Paul was in Thessalonica, he taught this doctrine. This was basic Bible doctrine. He taught this to them. Unfortunately, in the church today, this is no longer basic Bible doctrine. This is Bible doctrine you won't get in most churches. Because most churches don't teach the doctrine of the imminent return of Christ. They don't teach dispensationalism or a future for Israel or these sorts of things. But the day of the Lord is the time when there's going to be the tribulation opening up with the second coming of Christ. And so he's saying this is coming as a thief in the night. Now what Paul means by this is ultimately everything from the rapture to Armageddon. That whole time period. In fact, I would argue, and Zane Hodges really argued, that the second coming of Christ is not two second comings. One of the drawbacks in dispensationalism is many people think that there are essentially two second comings. First, he comes for the church. He he gets us, takes us back to heaven. And then seven years later, he comes again in a second second coming, which would really be a third coming, wouldn't it? And uh, then he ha- we have Armageddon and, and the destruction of all the opponents of Israel and deliverance of Israel, etc. Actually, what Hodges argued, and I would agree, is that we don't go with the Lord to heaven. We meet the Lord in the air, we stay with the Lord in the air, and to us, 
since a thousand years with the Lord is as a day, it's going to seem like about 20 minutes being in the air. Seven years will be about 20 minutes. And so at the end of that 20 minutes for us, in our time frame, different time frame, we're going to just keep on coming with the Lord to Armageddon. So it's going to look like from the standpoint of the Lord's concept, it's just going to be one second coming and picking us up along the way, which is what conquering generals often would do in the time of Christ. They would come in and they would meet the people of the various cities as they were going in their conquest. And that's what Jesus is going to do on his second coming. So he's coming as a thief in the night. Where does this thief of the night imagery come from? Look back at Matthew chapter 24, because it's there in Matthew 24 that this comes from, in the ministry of Jesus. Uh, Zane Hodges wrote what I thought was a very, it's a small little booklet, but it's very telling. It's called Jesus, God's Prophet, and in it he argued that Jesus is the one who taught eschatology. And that the apostles didn't make this stuff up. The apostles were simply teaching what Jesus taught. They learned this from Jesus. And if you look at Matthew chapter 24, uh, you'll see uh, and uh, the, some of the verses here. Let's see. I'm 43. There we are. But know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore, you also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming an hour you do not expect. Well, notice verse 42 has the word watch. And also verse 43 has the word watch. And we have in verse 43 the thief coming, coming in the night there. And we also have watching at the end of chapter 25, not at the end of, but at the end of 25, 1 to 13. In verse 13, watch therefore. That's the same word used in 1 Thessalonians 5 several times, to be watchful. And a lot of people don't think the rapture is in Matthew 24, but I would argue that the, math, the rapture is in Matthew 24:41. We have several articles by Dr. John Hart of Moody Bible Institute in our journal on this, and that Jesus is saying that's why we need to be watchful, because the Lord can return at any time. This doctrine of Jesus returning at a thief in the night doesn't mean he's trying to steal something from us. The illustration is one that he's coming unexpectedly. There's not going to be any sign of the rapture. And that's another mistake we have today in the church. A lot of people have whole ministries built on the signs of the times. And we have all these signs of the rapture. The problem with that is there isn't a single sign of the rapture. The signs are of the time when Jesus is going to set foot on the Mount of Olives, there are signs that people are in the tribulation, like the abomination of desolation. We know that comes comes at the midpoint of the tribulation. The signing of the covenant, which begins the tribulation. The rapture, of course, which precedes the tribulation. We don't know how long, probably 30 to 60 days before the tribulation starts, the church will be taken out. There's all kinds of signs that people are in the tribulation, There are signs of Jesus coming back. But actual signs for us in the church age? No, there's nothing that needs to be fulfilled. And, uh, you know, a lot of people say, well, Israel became a nation. That's a sign. Well, no, Israel simply has to be in the promised land when the tribulation begins. So if Israel left the promised land today and came back again in 20 years, that would work. 
I remember Craig Glickman said, you know what, if Israel leaves the promised land and isn't back in for a hundred years, it's not going to hurt my faith, because all I know is when the tribulation comes, Israel's going to be in the promised land. And so, you know, we assume because of the events we see, this must be the prophetic clock ticking. Well, it may be, but then again, it could be 50 years, 100 years, we don't know. I remember Zane Hodges, I wasn't there at the time, but in 1967 when they had the Six-Day Wars, he announced in chapel right after that, he says, I don't expect to be here in a year. A year later he preached in chapel and he said, I guess I'm not a prophet. (laughs) Arnold Fruchtenbaum was in that class and he thought it was pretty funny at the time, so... Anyway, back to our passage, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. He's coming as a thief in the night. This day comes. And when they hear peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman. In a sense, this is almost like saying that mankind, since the ascension of Jesus, has been pregnant, awaiting these labor pains. And at any point, the labor pains could have come. And these labor pains are going to come when the tribulation begins, and then seven years later, it's going to be a long time of labor. (laughs) Earth is going to be in labor for seven years, and then the Lord is going to come and He's going to relieve uh, Israel from all of the opponents around the earth. Notice the end of verse 3. They shall not escape. Compare that... For example, uh, with verse 9, the Lord did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation. And there are other verses here uh, as well. Um, We escape, they don't. The we or the you, the you is the Thessalonian church, the we is Paul, other believers in the Thessalonian church, and the you are unbelievers. Unbelievers are not going to escape the wrath of the tribulation. Believers will escape the wrath of the tribulation. This is good news. This is why he ends by saying comfort one another with these words. We're not going through that time of wrath. It wasn't for us. It was for mankind. It was not something God desired, but mankind chose it. Well, in verses 4 through 11, we're told by Paul that believers should be watchful and not asleep. Now, some of the translators have said waking and sleeping as though those were the options, which obviously you would think the opposite of sleeping would be waking. But the Greek word used is the Greek word gregoreo. We get the name Gregory from it, or Greg. And it means to be watchful. It's the same word used in Matthew 24, 42, 43, Matthew 25, 13. And it's used here several times in this passage. Um, we're to watch uh, verse 6 and again in verse 10 uh, whether we watch or sleep it's not wake it's watch or sleep now the point here clearly is believers have an option we don't have an option about going through the tribulation but we do have an option about whether we're going to be overtaken by the return of Christ as a big surprise or not The believer who thinks, my Lord delays his coming, and he can't come anytime soon. And the believer who thinks, you know what, it's got to be decades away, or maybe even centuries away. That believer, if the Lord comes right now, is going to be overtaken as a thief in the night. 
It's not that the Lord has any ominous plans for the person, but what it means is when the Lord comes, that's when judgment is going to come. That's when we appear at the judgment seat of Christ and we're going to be evaluated for what we've done with our lives. Now Paul doesn't develop that, the judgment seat of Christ, in this passage. He's talking about rapture truth. In 4.13-18 he talked about what happens with believers who die. Do they miss out on anything? Do they miss the millennium, whatever? And the answer is no, the dead in Christ rise first. Then we who are alive are caught up and meet him. And that's where the, by the word rapture comes from. The Latin word is rapturo in the Latin Vulgate. And so we get the word rapture from 1 Thess 4.17. But the idea is being caught up. Um, harpazo is the word, like the harpoon or whatever. It's like Jesus is harpooning us and pulling us to meet him in the air you know. but the dead in Christ rise first so we should be comforted in that sense we don't grieve like unbelievers grieve because we know loved ones who are believers are going to precede us in the rapture they'll be right ahead of us We're not, they're not going to miss anything they won't miss the millennium but this section is now dealing with what about the believer who is alive at the time of the rapture well the good news of this passage is that every believer is going to enter the kingdom Every believer is going to be with Jesus forever. No believer is going to miss. Now one of the weird things we have today, which is taught in many circles, even free grace circles by some people, is that unfaithful believers miss the rapture. And so there are believers who teach a partial rapture. Faithful believers are raptured at the beginning of the tribulation and then there are different raptures all the way along. If you get faithful, then you get to be raptured. Or some people say there's just one rapture and you're raptured. If not, you go through the tribulation. Well, all that's crazy. There are also believers who say that unfaithful believers miss the millennium. There are believers who say if you're an unfaithful believer, you're going to cast in this place called the outer darkness, which I guess must be kind of like Detroit or something. And uh, you, Cleveland, yeah, exactly. And you get, I don't know, the Cavaliers are doing pretty well. But anyway, you get, they get put in the outer darkness, and, they, and the outer darkness, they think, is missing the millennium. It's kind of like some kind of Siberia or something. You're not in the kingdom. No, this passage blows that out of the water. Let's walk through it just real quick. But you... Notice the switch from they to you. Brethren are not in the darkness. Now he's talking here positionally. Believers are not in the... That's not our position. The unbeliever is in a position of darkness because he's not yet accepted the truth of Scripture and the Word of God. This day refers to the return of Christ should overtake you as a thief. Now obviously it could. The way it could overtake the believer as a thief is if he's not thinking about it. If he's not living in light of it. If he's not prepared for it. If the believer is living like an unbeliever and the Lord returns, then this person is going to be overtaken. I had a neighbor who was uh, an alcoholic, a former alcoholic, and and, uh, drank and smoked a lot. She became a Christian, and so she cut way down on her drinking, uh, and she uh, continued to smoke. And she said, I never smoke and drink at the same time because I don't want the Lord to find me with a drink in one hand and a cigarette in the other. <laughs> well, that was on the right track. That was on the right track. She was moving in the right direction. Um, so anyway, he says here that it should overtake you as a thief. You are all sons of light and sons of the day. That's who we are in our position. And if we tap into our position, then we can know the Scriptures and should know the Scriptures. We, he now switches, including himself and all believers, are not of the night or of the darkness. In other words, we should not live like children of darkness because that's not who we are. We're children of light. For a believer to live like a child of darkness, to 
getting drunk, to be involved in immorality, to be involved in the things of darkness, makes no sense because that's inconsistent with who we are at the core of our being. We're born of God, born of God people. And born of God people, at the core of their being, are light people. We're, we're people of the light. And so we ought to live like that. And if we do, then we won't be overtaken by the return of Christ, like a thief in the night. But if, but if we are living in the darkness, then His return will be unpleasant for us, because we will not be prepared, and we will not hear, Well done, good and faithful servant. So he says, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch, there's our word Gregorio again, and be sober. Those who sleep, sleep at night. Those who get drunk, get drunk at night. And this is true, isn't it? I used to, my dad was an alcoholic, and I went to a lot, a lot more bars than I did churches growing up. And bars, for whatever reason, were so dark that you couldn't hardly see anything. You know, if you wanted to see the menu, my dad would take his lighter out, you know, <laughs> you could read the menu or whatever. It was very dark in bars. And uh, I think it was just, you know, even if it was in the day, you know, it would be dark in the bars. And uh, for whatever reason, the moral darkness is often associated with physical darkness. And so he says, but let us who are of the day, that's in our position, be sober. He not only means not drunk, he means people who are living consciously in light of Jesus' return. We're sober-minded related to his return. And then notice we get this uh, trilogy of faith, hope, and love here. Putting on... Uh, the breastplate of faith and love, this is what protects our internal organs, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. Uh, so we've got hope here, faith, and love. Now the hope of salvation, most people miss here. Most people think this is saying the hope of going to be with the Lord and having eternal life. Well, hello, we already have eternal life. We don't hope for that. Now, we do. The word hope, biblical word for hope, is something which is certain, but we don't yet have. So you could argue that this is talking about the fullness of eternal life which is to come, but even that doesn't fit the context. What's the context? The return of Christ, the tribulation, they won't escape, we will escape. So what is the hope of salvation? It's the guarantee of our future deliverance from the wrath, from the tribulation. The word salvation in Scripture is a word that means deliverance. And unfortunately, in the church today, we've taken salvation to be a technical term for the new birth, or for how a person is born again. About two-thirds of the time in the New Testament, the word salvation refers to some deliverance other than salvation from hell or eternal life. Here's an example. In fact, this is brought up more in verse 9. For God did not appoint us for wrath. Who did he appoint for wrath? The unbelievers, right? Yeah. And the wrath is talking about the tribulation. He didn't appoint us for wrath, but to obtain salvation. Well, now, this salvation is not something that's different from the wrath. A lot of people think this wrath means hell. This wrath isn't hell. This wrath is the tribulation. In fact, Hodges argues that all wrath ends at the end of the millennium with the final rebellion. And hell has nothing to do with wrath. Hell is just God's justice. God's wrath ends when sin ends. But in any regard, it says, God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation or deliverance from the wrath. That is the rapture through our Lord Jesus Christ who died for us now we bring up the cross here and notice this a lot of people think the cross 
is exclusively for us to get eternal life so that he's removed the sin barrier so we can have eternal life. Actually, in the New Testament, the cross is related to so many things. Um, It's, for example, related to us having forgiveness of sins. Without the cross, there's no positional forgiveness. It's also related to us not dying in our sins because the unbeliever dies in their sins, the believer doesn't. We have no sin nature after we die. And it's also related to the fact that if we walk in the light, 1 John 1.7, then we have fellowship with God and the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. What that verse also means is if we don't walk in the light, then the blood of Jesus doesn't cleanse us from all sin. And so the believer is going to walk out of fellowship with God because he doesn't have the cleansing power of the blood of Christ if he's walking in the darkness and not confessing his sins. 1 John 1, nine. So anyway, this tells us another benefit of the cross of Christ, which is the rapture. That whether we are watchful or whether we're asleep, we should live together with him. 1 Thess 5.10, in my mind, blows out of the water the idea that somehow believers could miss the rapture. Or it also blows out of the water the idea that believers could miss the millennium in Detroit or wherever it is. Obviously, if we're going to live together with him, then if he's in the millennium, we're in the millennium. If he's on the millennial earth, we're on the millennial earth. Now, it's true that some may be closer to him than others, and some may rule with him and some not. But all believers, even the ones who are asleep, morally asleep at the time of the rapture, are going to be with him. All believers will be with him in his kingdom. And therefore, verse 11, comfort each other and edify one another as you also are doing. So the point is, we as believers need to realize that the return of Christ is imminent. Now there's two mistakes we need to avoid. Mistake number one is being absolutely certain that it's occurring this year, right? It's got to be 2009, right? Like the guy who wrote 88 Reasons Why Jesus is Returning in 1988, and then the next year the book was on sale for 50 cents, you know? We can't do that. That's a mistake, because we don't know the day or the hour. We don't know exactly when Jesus is returning. It could be, well, today. It could be this year. But it could be off 100 years, and we don't know for sure. We cannot be certain. Uh, so that's one mistake, is to say we're sure it's going to be this year. And so like the, in Second Thessalonians, they were Thessalonians who weren't working, who were just mooching off of other believers. And Paul said, if anyone won't work, let him not eat. In other words, stop feeding the believers who aren't working as they wait for the return of Christ. And they'd still be waiting now, right? <laughs> so that's one mistake. Um, but the other mistake is to think, he can't come in my lifetime. I mean, it just doesn't make any sense. And so I'm not preparing and I'm not living in light of a soon return. And this means that we need to be people who are living in two worlds at the same time. We're not of this world, but we do live in this world. And until Christ returns, we have to prepare as though we might have to retire someday. We have to prepare as though we may leave an inheritance to our children. And so... We lay up money for the future, like the ant, right, that that was working in the summer so that when the winter comes, he's got that. And we're preparing an inheritance for our kids, even though it's possible that we're going to be raptured this year. And that's not going to be a shame if you die with money in the bank. (laughs) It's okay. Uh, Because the thing is, the Lord wants us to be prepared both ways. Watchful for his return now, but also if he doesn't return 
that we're ready to live out the rest of our lives. We've got a few minutes for questions or comments, so uh, why don't you, I, I guess I left about 10 minutes or so. Yeah, Neil. Um, my question is, what do you make of the Christian Bible Watch therefore and pray always that you may be counted worthy to escape all things that will come to pass and stand before the Son of Man. I guess the uh, NIV in the New American Standard reads something like that you may have strength or something like that, but the majority of manuscripts are counted worthy. Um, Well, that's a good question. It seems like I knew the answer to that at one point. Let me see. See, notice verse 34 about that lest your heart be weighed down with carousing, drunkenness, the cares of this life, the day come on you unexpectedly. That's the same thing we've been reading about in 1 Thess 5. That would be the believer who's overtaken. For it will come as a snare on all those who dwell in the face of the earth. Watch again the same theme we have in uh, 1 Thess 5. Therefore, and pray always that you may be counted worthy to escape all these things. I would say probably the answer is, I think the way I took this before, is it doesn't say that you may escape, but you may be counted worthy to escape. Of course, if you have the New American Standard, the NIV, you're reading different Greek words. This is another reason why I'm convinced the majority of texts is right, not only because it's the majority of manuscripts, but also passage after passage after passage open up theologically with the majority text reading. For example, here, counted worthy. Well, all believers are going to be raptured, but not all believers are going to be worthy of being raptured. So the believer who's living for Christ, it seems to me, is one who is worthy of that. Of course, worthy is obviously in relative terms. This term worthy is used in many places like... Uh, Revelation 3, 4, and 5 talking about we're worthy to walk with him in white if we have overcome. Well, that's obviously relative because we're sinners. Even as we're walking in the light, we are sinners. But the point is, if a believer is walking in the light, walking in fellowship with God, that makes that person in some sense, that's the way I would understand it, worthy of escaping these things. And to stand, notice the and to stand part. I mean, obviously all believers are going to be before Christ and probably all will be standing before Christ. But the point, I think, of the standing is that this is a person who is not going to be ashamed before him. Like 1 John 2.28, my little children abide in him so that when he appears we may have confidence and not shrink back in shame at his coming. So anyway, that's how I'd probably understand that. And just one follow-up. Yeah. Also the same condition that we perhaps see in Revelation 3.10. Yes, now 310 is a little different, I think. Um, Niemela had a discussion. You guys know John Niemela, right? He's, well, he's from Minnesota, but he's lived here for 10 years, so he counts himself as a golden son or whatever. Uh, I was born here, though, however. I was born in Los Angeles at an early age. But John argues that you know punctuation in the scriptures was not given in the original Greek and we've added punctuation and the Emil argues the punctuation here fails us in his view verse 9 and verse 10 are one sentence and that verse, the sentence doesn't end until the word persevere and so he reads it this way indeed I will make those of the synagogue of Satan 
the assembly of Satan, a church that's really not a church, but a gathering of Satan, who say they are Jews and are not, I'm not a church, but a, a Jewish synagogue, but lie. Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet and to know that I have loved you. Why have I loved you? Because you have kept my command to persevere. Period. I will also keep you from the hour of trial, which will come on the whole earth to test those who dwell on the earth. That punctuation makes the passage come alive, because all believers are going to be kept from the hour of testing. But the reason why he has loved them is because they have kept his command to persevere. And it's not that those who persevere are going to be kept from the hour of testing. It's all believers are kept from the hour of testing. But those who persevere are those whom Jesus loves in a special sense. Obviously, Jesus loves all believers. He even loves unbelievers. But his love for the believer who perseveres is a special one. And no more questions for you. <laughs> no, you can have more, but only after we get some more. Yeah. Yeah. The believer and the unbeliever are believers that must have believing in the Lord. Yep. Not repenting of his sins. Yep. Okay, you used repenting, I used confessing. The reason I think that's significant is, believe it or not, the word repentance doesn't occur in 1 John, just like it doesn't occur in the Gospel of John. I remember I was at one of our conferences the year Zane had a heart attack. Uh, and he was supposed to speak on repentance, and I delivered his paper. <laughs> and then somebody said, okay, you say that repentance isn't a condition for eternal life because we don't see it in the Gospel of John, and the purpose of the Gospel of John is that people might believe and have life. I said, right. And he says, now isn't the purpose of First John that people might have fellowship with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ, 1, 3, and 4? I said, yeah. And he said, repentance doesn't occur in First John either. So isn't the conclusion then, the inescapable conclusion using your own logic, that repentance isn't a condition of fellowship with God? And I was like, thank you for sharing. (laughs) And you know what the answer to that question is? Absolutely. The condition for the person who's walking in the light and confessing their sins to stay in the light is confession of our known sins. It's not repentance. Repentance is for the person in, like the prodigal son in Luke 15 who with intentionality goes to the far country and departs from the Lord. That person needs to make a decision to come back and get right with God because they are not right with God. They're not walking in the light. They're walking in the darkness. But the person who's walking in the light and confessing their sins, the condition is to continue to confess their sins. And the verse I mentioned was 1 John 1, 7, 8, 9. In one seven, if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. Then we have the second of three if-we-stay statements, three false statements. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So the person who's saying, look, I don't have any sin in my life, that person isn't walking in the light. Well, the opposite of that is the person who confesses their sins. And it's interesting, in verse 9, we're to confess the sins we're aware of, and then God cleanses us not only, He not only forgives us of those sins, but He cleanses us from all sins, from all unrighteousness. Yet. I'm talking about the first thing. He says they accept the Lord, but they don't walk in that. They continue to walk in their own way, so they're continuing in their sin. Right. And uh, redemption is the way 
Neil showed us in what was that Luke 21 and also the passage we looked at in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 shows us that believers might be asleep at the switch that believers might be carousing and drunken and these sorts of things and the book of 1 Corinthians clearly shows us that can be the case from the time they're born again until the time they die in 1 Corinthians 11.30 he says because they were getting drunk at the Lord's Supper he says because of this some of you are sick and some sleep sleep is a reference to the death of believers so the fact is yes ideally the unbeliever should turn from their sins and want to be right with God and the unbeliever should start the Christian life when they believe in Jesus with a commitment to follow him and to live the Christian life but there's no guarantee of that because the only condition of eternal life is John 3.16, believing in Him. And if I believe in Him, and I'm walking in the darkness, and I want to continue to walk in the darkness, which is dumb, but let's say I did want to continue to walk in the darkness, well, God has ways of motivating me to change my path. And uh, like a good parent, God is going to discipline the believer who's walking in darkness. I think the beautiful story of this is the prodigal son. He goes off to a spiritual Las Vegas, and what happens? He loses everything he has. There's famine in the land. He's in want. He realizes even his father's hired servants have food and to spare, and he's there longing for the pods that he's feeding the pigs, which is not good for a Jewish boy to be fellowshipping with the pigs. So. So anyhow, it seems to me, of course, although repentance is not a condition of eternal life, it's smart for the unbeliever to repent. And you know, there's a lot of people in 12-step programs who aren't born again. But they're repentant, right? They don't want to be alcoholics anymore. They don't want to be cocaine addicts anymore. They realize this has ruined their lives, ruined their marriages, ruined their families. So they repent. And some of them later come to faith, some don't. Unfortunately, a person can be repentant and never come to faith in Christ. Always think, well, I'm going to be good enough and that kind of thing. Well, we got time for maybe another question or two. Anybody else? Yeah. All right. Oh, all right. I made a mistake here. Okay. Uh, <laughs> but the, the story of Noah and the one taken and the one left in Matthew 24. Yeah. Do you uh, find that same story in Luke 17? Is it Luke 17 where the vultures are and all that? Where is that? Uh, what are the verses on that? Luke 17. Let's see. We got Lot. Remember Lot's wife? Are you in here too? Oh, okay, that's 35. Yeah, 34 and following. Yeah, I, I do, but yeah, I do, but I don't remember. This is the biggest problem with this view is verse 37. It says, "Where the body is, there the eagles will be gathered together." And the idea is most people take it in verse 34 when it says one will be taken and the other will be left. That the one taken 
is the one taken in judgment and the one left is the one left to go into the millennium in a natural body. Um, and I think they take a lot of influence from verse 37, um, but I'm not sure how that would work either way because you know, the person left, you could argue just the opposite, that the person who's left there and not taken is the one who's going to be for the for the eagles and this term eagles can also refer at belief to other types of birds of prey as well so yeah I would say this probably is also a rapture passage remember Lot's wife you know being watchful that sort of thing the whole thing is related to watchfulness and the one taken one left the idea that the one left is the one blessed doesn't seem to fit other passages or Matthew 24 so I would take it that way but look and see how John Hart deals with this he's done a three part series in the third we haven't published and I think his discussion of this passage is in there but that's another good question yeah John I've heard, that, I've, I've heard this described also as maybe the, the midpoint of tribulation when the when the abomination of desolation is and the people that take their time and tarry there they're the ones that are going to be taken away and you know killed and the ones that flee yeah. You know, have you heard that as well? I don't recall hearing that view, although, you know, I mean, theoretically that might fit, but it seems to me um, the what theme of watchfulness is for the, primarily for the believer in this age. Now, we do have in the parable of the ten virgins, evidently the five have not sufficiently prepared themselves for the return of Messiah at the end of the seven years even though in some sense they're watchful so there's something different going on with tribulation saints because of the abomination of desolation and because of all these persecutions in the second half but anyway that's a good question well uh, we're out of time and come on up if you want to talk more